Winston Churchill once said, the pessimist sees difficulty in every opportunity. The optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. Get ready to be inspired. This is the Big Fish Cares Podcast. Big Fish Cares Podcast. Whether it's business, life, financial, relationships, we're sharing stories and journeys to help inspire you to be optimistic and to take action. No matter the hurdle in life, you can do it, and we're here to help. Welcome to the Big Fish Cares Podcast, and here's your host, Benny Fisher. I'm really excited to be back today. We have our good friend, legendary sports author and writer, Jim O'Brien, the good guy. Good morning, Jim. How are you today? I'm good. I work at being a good guy. It's not easy, but I think it's the right way. I had someone come to my home yesterday to buy three books for her husband, Rich. She said, can I come to your home? I said, sure. My wife will be here. And I signed three books, and she was thanking me. And I'm thanking her. I'm saying, no, it works the other way around. Turn it around. You're doing me a favor. You're buying one of my books. And I have written 31 books, Ben. So I still have some books in the garage. Some of them are sold out completely, but some I need to, I need to keep hustling. What was the bestseller? The bestseller, there were two. The bestseller was, you're getting good at this, Ben, by the way. Roberto Clemente called Remember Roberto. I sold about 20,000 copies of that book. And the other good seller was Maz and the 60 Bucks, uh, which was one of my favorite books. The best book that I've written to date in my mind. And I knew up front that it would be a tough sell because boxing is not high on most people's favorite list of sports. But it has the best stories because boxing was full of characters and including the most fascinating fellow I've ever met in sports, and that would be Muhammad Ali. So there was lots to write about, and um, it's called From A to Z. Yeah, from, we, t- we from- talked about that last week, and uh, I think the listeners would be very curious. Uh, if you didn't le- listen to last week's episode, listen to it because – he talks about when Muhammad Ali came to Pittsburgh and the, the events surrounding that, and it was very interesting. So the best book is that book, the A to Z book. The best-selling book was the Clemente book, um, which Clemente, when I moved to Pittsburgh 11 years ago, I decided I was going to be very, very passionate about learning about him and collecting some of his memorabilia and sports cards because that's something I've always been passionate about. And I said, if I'm going to move to Pittsburgh, I can't become a Steeler fan because I'm a diehard Browns fan, so that won't work. So I can at least get behind the Pirates. This was in 2010 when I moved over here, so right before they made that playoff run, those three years with uh, McCutcheon and, and those guys. Um, but Clemente, it was it was fun getting to learn about him, uh, learn about um, him even as the humanitarian, uh, the person that uh, would always take food back to his country and really support those people. Um, and then the tragedy, you know, and how he passed away, but he was always, you know, a legend in uh, Pittsburgh. And I always thought it was funny that he ended his career exactly on 3,000 hits. Well, that's, that's a strange situation in itself. It was the end of the season, and they had one game to go, and Roberto wanted to sit it out. He just wanted to sit it out. It wasn't an important ball game. And the public relations man for the Pirates, a fellow named Bill Guilfoyle, 
who lived in the South Hills of Pittsburgh. Bill Guilfoyle talked Roberto Clemente into playing in that game. Uh, it was against the Mets, the New York Mets, a team that I had covered in New York City. So that particular day, he, dis- he does play. And he, he um, hit the ball once where they called it an error. And he thought he should have gotten a hit on it. But uh, Luke Quay, who was the sports editor of the McKeesport Daily News, was the scorekeeper that day. And he called it an error. So he still doesn't have the 3,000th hit. The pitcher is John Matlack, J-O-N. He had played at Pitt for a while. And he was one of the... They had Seaver, and they had uh, some really good... Jerry Kuzman, some really good pitchers. They had had... Uh, Nolan Ryan. 1969. Yeah. So, Clemente didn't hit a double. And he goes to second base, and he stands on second base, and he holds his cap overhead to acknowledge the fact that he did something special. It's an iconic photo in Pittsburgh sports history. And it was taken by a guy named Edwin Morgan of the Pittsburgh Press, who was a colleague of mine at... uh, at one stage when I worked there. That picture often appears in publications in Pittsburgh, and they never give Ed Morgan credit for it. I mean, it's like the photo of Maz coming into home plate, which was taken by James Klingensmith of the Post-Gazette. You would think when that photo appears in the Post-Gazette that they would want you to know that that photo was taken by one of their photographers, James Klingensmith. Do they have to put it in little small print, like at least at the bottom or something? Agate. That's called agate type and uh, you'd think they would do it but they most most often they don't credit one of the things i've always done ben in my books is i always make sure that photographers get proper credit because uh, i'm big on photos the newest book i have right now the uh, the strangest season has 520 photos in 480 pages. That's good for uh, the people like me that need uh, lots of photos to read through a big, thick book. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, so appreciative. It goes, it goes a little faster than uh, it looks on the outside. because yeah, I'm that, appreciative of uh, patrons uh, that don't read a lot because uh, if they do, they'll really appreciate my book if they're someone who's... Yeah, because if I'm to, looking at this book... Just the way it is at the bookstore. I'm thinking, man, that's a lot. Of, and then if I open one page without any photos, I'm thinking, oh, man. And it's like, you know, it's top to bottom. But then when you look through it, yeah, you do. You see some little photos, big photos. Plus, they're short stories. So your books, a lot of your books are like that, right? You're starting to really get good at this, Ben. <laughs> you you don't realize this, and most of the readers wouldn't recognize it either. But, you know, I read a lot of books. And... If you go into a used bookstore, you'll see so many books by James Patterson. James Patterson has a definite formula. He writes short paragraphs. He writes short uh, chapters. The chapters are usually about three pages at the most. So I don't know about you, but when I'm reading, I like to finish a chapter before I go to bed at night. You know, So I'll flip ahead a few, see how much farther I have to go before I can put the book to rest on the nightstand. And James Patterson's one of the America's most successful writers, so I figured he knows what he's doing. And uh, I've picked up on that. I, you, there's different ways you can separate copy with photos, with blurbs, 
and things like that. And it makes it easier to read. I just read a book I think I recommended to you earlier, Out of the Blue, about 9-11. yeah. And it's easy to read. It's... I was reading that and enjoying it so much and learning so much that I just thought, I'm going to read this book from start to finish. And I read it in seven hours. And it was really seven hours well spent because I've learned a lot about a day that no one will ever forget who was around at the time. And uh, it's really well written. It's compelling stuff. and, And that's what you want to do when you're an author. Well, that's good stuff. Um, what uh, why do you what do you recommend to the kids out there? When I say kids, I'm talking to the 18 to 40 year olds that you know they think the reading was for high school and college. And what do you tell them about reading as an adult? I like to uh, say that I continue my education. I'm often amazed by I start reading a book and in the first couple pages I learn something that I never knew before. And I like I like to get smarter. Uh, I'm 79 years old and I'm a better student today than I was whenever I was actually a student. I, um, I, I've come to a couple conclusions that I could tell young people and that's this. School would be much easier if one, you were in class every day and I wasn't. It's easier if you actually take notes. You write down the notes when the professor's speaking or your teacher's talking and they say it twice or they say it three times, circle it. If you do your homework, I find it, it I laugh at my discoveries as I get older. Um, I read a book on Hamilton about two years ago. I bought it in a library for about two dollars. Thick book, Ben. You would have really gotten nervous if you'd seen Hamilton yeah. by Ron Chernow, who's written a lot of good books. He's a good historian. And I picked up that book at the uh, Peters Township Library, which, by the way, is the main library for Washington County. Okay, That makes sense. That's where all the money is. Yeah. Well, that's why I live there, around there. And... Uh, People with money can buy books. So I like to read and I like to learn. And I like to read about the Civil War. You know, somebody will say to me, uh, if they pick up one of my early books, and maybe it's about the 1960 Pirates, which are still the most beloved sports team and the favorite sports team in the history of the city of Pittsburgh superseding the Steelers of the 70s. Trust me on that. And the thing is, is that I'll be talking about the book to some mother or something like that or to the kid, and they'll say, well, that's before my time. And I say, hey, so was the Civil War. (laughs) Some people might think I covered it, but I didn't. But I like to learn about it. And... uh, just the other day on uh, Jeopardy, there was a question about uh, one of the generals dying under friendly fire from the side. It was Stonewall Jackson. And I knew it. And that, that Hamilton, when I went to the library, they had an a expert on Hamilton come to the Peters Township Library for a program. And I had read the book. I'd, by that time, I'd read about three-fourths of it. And I'm sitting there in the audience, and he's talking about things. And as he's talking about them, I am familiar 
with what he's saying. And it hits me, you know, if I had read the books in school, it would have been easier to take those tests. Yeah. You'd know the answer. Well, you're probably just a bright guy. You probably listen to it once and then can remember it. And you would t- could, you could, could you still test well or did you just, what kind of grades did you get in school? Well, first of all, I never really worried that much about grades. My mother's dictum to me as a child, I grew up in Hazelwood section of Pittsburgh, the inner city of Pittsburgh, and it was easy to get into trouble in, in Hazelwood. So my goal to keep my mom happy was she said, don't get into trouble, stay out of trouble. So that was my main thrust. And, and my parents really didn't push me as far as school was concerned. But I had, this might surprise you, Ben, I had a self-confidence. <laughs> I'm sure you came out of the womb with that. I believed, you know, that things would work out for me. And I always, like anytime we had a contest in school uh, for selling magazines, for selling book orders, for selling uh, magazines, uh, newspaper subscribers, whatever it was, I always wanted to win. And I did that as an adult when I belonged at a Rotary Club. Get this, I sold one year over $3,000 worth of tickets for a chicken barbecue. Oh, they love you. They lo- But you know what? They all didn't love me because it made it tougher for everybody else. Well, you set the bar real high. Yeah, too high. I went door to door. Do you think there's such thing as setting the bar too high? Not for me. But Not I mean, do you think in general? I mean, like, would you ever tell your grandkids, don't, don't set the bar too high? No, that's it. You know, Ben, you were really getting good at this. My granddaughter, Margaret, who is a senior in high school and looking at schools such as Harvard, uh, Yale, Georgetown, Vanderbilt, Virginia, University of Pittsburgh, Carnegie Mellon, she was telling me that she's taking two classes right now at Ohio State University as a senior in high school. OH. So she's already, Ohio State would love to have her, but she's in this class and she told me that uh, she felt bad for the professor because the professor was trying to engage the students in conversation and dialogue, and they weren't responding. And she asked a question, and and Margaret, just like her mother, Sarah, she thrust her hand skyward. You know, she was so proud. She knew the answer. So she answered the first question. So the professor asked a second question. Margaret was ready to throw her hand up in the air, but she looks around and nobody's hand is up. So she got a little squeamish about, I don't want to show off or I don't want to annoy these kids. So I'm like, I'm going to pass on this one. So then she says to me, tells me about this. And I said, Margaret, you can't not answer the question when you know the answer. I said, you have to talk to that professor on the side before or after class and explain how you felt, how you, you knew the answer, but you didn't want to uh, upset the rest of the students by being a show-off. And she said, Dad, she said, I really feel smarter than a lot of those students. And I said, well, that's great. I said, that's why you should go to Ohio State. I said, why go to Harvard and Yale and bust your head against a wall? with all those nerds and, and uh, 
elite students and so forth. Go where you can get uh, some A's and where you feel good about yourself. I said, there's a, there's a quality about that. Is there? I, I mean, think so. Really? Yes. I'll tell you why. For instance, like tell- University of Pittsburgh is my alma mater. She just says she wants to go to a big city school. Well, Pittsburgh is a big city. No, she's looking at uh, Columbia. That's in New York City, which is a bigger city. And Washington, D.C. is a They're not even a, close. unique city, you know. Yeah, Pittsburgh and New York City are not even close. No, but the thing is, is that Pittsburgh is, it's not underrated because Pittsburgh has shown up in a lot of different national ratings as a good place to live, uh, reasonable rates for real estate. And uh, we're now we're now one of the top, cities in America and maybe in the world for medicine and education. That's two of the things that we no longer are. I I am amused by the fact that uh, when Steelers play a football game on television, you know, they show you some footage of hot steel being poured into uh, forms. And um, my family worked in in the steel business, and I was determined not to work in the steel business. But we're not the steel city anymore. That's that's in a legacy kind of thing. And it's 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 okay to refer to us as the steel city, but don't act as if we're still the steel city. It's not easy to say. But uh we can be proud of the fact that now we're one of the citadels of medicine and education. Uh, those are two pretty good priorities. So you're talking about your daughter going to pit? Yes. And you were telling that story, and then we started a rabbit trail. So let's get back to you saying something about her going to pit because she could stand out. Well, I think that's, that's my granddaughter. Think that's, or your granddaughter. I think that's where you were going with this. Like, you think it's okay to mingle in with people that um, you might not have to compete against as hard to have, what, more confidence? And you think the confidence is more important than the competition and the education? And trying I, to strive to get better? I think that you... The fact that I told you that I read so much, and my wife reads a lot. She, my wife reads about 40 to 45 books a year, mostly books that I don't read, and she doesn't normally read the books that I read. But I've told some of my friends, uh, one of them was somebody that uh, you know in the business, and that was Bino Cook. Bino never understood women. He just didn't get it. And he was oftentimes uh, insulting around women and um, made remarks that were inappropriate. And I remember telling Bino one time, I said, Bino, as you get older, you'll realize that smart is sexy. Having a smart wife is sexy. Because, like, we watch Jeopardy at five times, sometimes six times a week. And we record it too, so we can watch it whenever we want to. But we also watch it at seven o'clock. And do you do you probably watch the episode by yourself, and then you put, play it back with her so you can try to compete with her? Because no, I know, no, I know, she's better. She, she clean your clock every time. Well, she doesn't clean my clock, but she she's. Do you guys she's keep smarter. track? Well, we keep track of Scrabble. So you don't keep track of Jeopardy. So like me and my grandpa played Jeopardy when I was little and we would just, we would just count ones, you know, we get an answer, right? We just go one and then we'd be like one, two, and then two, two. And then, and I think that's where I got a lot of my um, memory 
uh, like of weird random facts and different things because then I would remember the answer. You know, I wouldn't really understand the answer, but I would remember the answer. So I was always good at trivia because every time I'd go over to see my grandpa, we would just sit there and play um, Jeopardy. And then during the day when I would stay in the summer, we would do prices right. So then I was always good at trying to, um, you know, guess what things cost and play the games that way. And, and those were good times with my grandpa. But, uh, well, good times with your grandpa. I envy you because that is something that I did not experience. My maternal grandfather was deceased when I was born. And, uh, my, uh, father's father, I actually tipped over in the ca- sitting at the bottom of the casket. I don't know why anybody propped me up there, but uh, I didn't have that experience of having grandpas. And I was listening to uh, the Garth Brooks channel recently uh, while driving, and uh, there's a song about uh, it has a lyric in it that says, "And grandpas never die." And grandpas should be the source of wisdom because they've experienced things that uh, I haven't experienced. I always liked being able to interview older people uh, because they had experienced something. They had seen something that I didn't see. And in my books, for instance, one of my favorite people to write about is Arthur J. Rooney Sr., the founder of the Pittsburgh Steelers. So I'm always bumping into people, less and less, as I must admit, as I move forward, who bumped into him as, you know, got on an elevator with him or met him somewhere, or they were, they were the benefactor of his kindness. There's something on TV right now that says that uh, kindness is the greatest gift when you're, when you're thinking about Christmas and so forth. Every opportunity I had to talk to Art Rooney, I took advantage of it. And I wasn't always interviewing him necessarily, but I was talking to him. And I really believe that Art Rooney was for me, and others have expressed a similar uh, experience. He was like the grandfather that I never had. And he had such a unique perspective on life. Uh, he was a humble man. He was sharp. He was sharp. He was street smart. And I'd like to think that I was kind of street smart. I, when I was in high school, I, I had to walk a very perilous uh, line. I wanted, to be, I wanted to be friendly with the smart kids, and I also wanted to be friendly with the guys from my neighborhood. And that wasn't always easy to do. I didn't want either of those groups not to like me. Rocky Blyer, who's become a a dear and cherished friend of mine as I get older, Rocky Blyer wanted everybody, and still does, wants everybody to like him. Now, he was a roommate of Jack Lambert at uh, St. Vincent College during the uh, summer camp. Two contrary characters. They got along. They got along. They still do. Rocky gives me reports on, you know, Lambert didn't like the fact that I did a book about him. Why? I'll never know because I was very kind to him. And I was kinder than some of his teammates who gave me stories that I didn't use. So I thought I was doing him a solid. Yeah. And I'm proud of the book. And you know what Rocky told me? He said, I think he likes the book. (laughs) I think he likes the book. Well, you heard it here first on the Big Fish Cares podcast. 
that Mr. Lambert really likes the book. But he tells people when someone asks him to sign the book, he'll say something like, no, no, it's true. It's not true. Do you think he's just trying to keep up that tough guy image? Yes. Oh, yeah. For sure. I mean, because like, it's almost like it's kind of like the, uh, you know, the WWF back in the 90s, the wrestlers and stuff like that. You know, like when they retire and get old, they still got to be that. They got to maintain their image. You know, well, tough guy's got to stay tough. And He had a dad that was a little fellow, believe it or not. Can you imagine Jack Lambert having a little dad? My dad was a little guy, 5'7", 140 pounds. I feel like back in that day, though, people didn't get that tall. No, they didn't. You know, for instance, I think I told you about uh, Les Bingham of the Detroit Lions being the only 300-pounder in the uh, NFL. And now, I, w- who was, I just watched a game the other day. You can't play on the offensive on line if you're not going to be 300 pounds. On high school. Three players on the offensive line of a local high school were all over 300 pounds. I mean, we're eating better nowadays than we ever have, that's for sure. Yeah. So tell me more about Rocky Blyer, because I, I think that, especially for our younger listeners, you know, the people, you know, under, you know, 50, 40 you know, years old, they probably don't know a whole lot about Rocky Blyer. So tell me about Rocky Blyer. Well, I'm, I think I'm now the only person in Pittsburgh who was actually in the bar that his dad owned in Appleton, Wisconsin. I was there with my friend, Alex Pochask, who's from Wisconsin, so he knew his way around, and uh, we spent some time in Appleton. We saw St. Joseph's School, where Rocky went to school, and Rocky was a very well-known high school athlete. I mean, he played all sports, and uh, you know, you can look it up on the internet, and you'll find Rocky Blyer is a is a all-around athlete. Then he goes to Notre Dame, and Notre Dame—that's another topic we got to get into about uh, Kelly going to uh, he's leaving coaching at Notre Dame no one leaves Notre Dame so that's all that'll be a good topic to talk about yeah but college football is not the same as it used to be no it isn't we can we can deal with that topic as well I don't like Chip Kelly I'm not a fan yeah I hate coaches who get Chip or Brian Brian uh, Brian Kelly is also a Chip Kelly yeah Brian thank you I don't even follow football anymore, and I still knew that name. Well, you got to contribute something to this show. <laughs> so give me the Rocky. So, so Rocky's from Wisconsin. And why, I'm sure you'll get to this, but why were you at a bar in Wisconsin? Well, I went there to see, I was working on a book, and I, I wanted to see what it was like because I'd heard stories about it. I mean, Rocky's parents had some some questionable characters living upstairs in their bar. They slept upstairs, the Blairs. And uh, Rocky's done a show about his life and about, uh, you know, it's set in that bar. And I wanted to see it. I wanted to experience it. You know, I wanted to be able to set the scene for where Rocky grew up. He was, um, his dad owned this bar. And when Rocky was born, apparently he was a chunky kid. He was a chubby kid. You can identify with that. And he... uh, (laughs) Yeah, I had to get the sound effects in. That was the first time for the sound effects. Thanks, Jim. I've been working really hard. I've lost 75 pounds over the last two years. You break up with someone again. No, I don't know. I have no idea what you're talking about, Jim. All I'm telling you is that I am under the 300-pound mark. Under the 300-pound mark. So. I never realized that you, you carried your weight well. Oh, yeah. Well, it's 6'1", baby. But the, getting back to the point, 
Rocky Blair's father was talking about this little kid, this little chunky little kid, and he kept saying that uh, he's a rock. He's a little rock. And he would tell his customers that. So that's how he got the nickname Rocky Blair. And I just watched a TV special on Rocky uh, that was shot in Vietnam. ESPN did it, and it was called The Return. And I reread Rocky's book by a fellow named Terry O'Neill. I get, often get confused with him, Terry O'Neill. I knew Terry, worked at ABC, was a friend of Bino Cook. And he wrote this book called uh, uh, Coming Back, or was that the name of it? No, Fighting Back. Fighting, Fighting back, back. Fighting Back. And when I reread it, I realized Rocky really was in great danger, you know, and he really was under fire. And um, another soldier actually took Rocky and slung him over his shoulders and carried him to safety. Rocky didn't know his name, never met him, didn't know who he was, and he basically saved Rocky's life. So I think Rocky is a grateful person. He was raised in the Catholic tradition in in, uh, Appleton, Wisconsin. When he did the show at the O'Reilly Theater in Pittsburgh, I talked to him and for at least one performance when I was there. I said, you have to tell people who else is from Appleton, Wisconsin. And we're talking about Willem Dafoe, the actor. We're okay. talking about Edna Ferber, the author. Harry Houdini, the great ma- magician. We're talking about uh, Joe McCarthy of the communist wow. red-baiting era. They were all from... How many people live in Appleton? <laughs> Gotta be a small town. Well, it's probably about ten thousand. That's it. Yeah. And all those people came from there. Right. That's a rich tradition. Well, you know, in here in western Pennsylvania, for instance, we have a community called Denora. Oh yeah. And you worked in Monongahela, so you're mm-hmm. familiar with the Steel Valley. Denora turned out a dozen, a dozen wonderful college and pro athletes. I mean, you're talking about Stan Usual, Deacon Dan Tyler. Ken Griffey Sr. and Ken Griffey. We're talking about Rudy Andebaker, Lou Bimbo Ciccone. Uh, I know Bimbo. Yeah, Harry Epperson. You know, his daughter is on uh, CNBC. He became the, uh, the uh, chairman of the Pitt School of Social Work at the University of Pittsburgh. So that's a pretty good accomplishment as well for a kid from Denora. Arnold Galiffa was on the cover of Life magazine in a baseball uniform because he was in the Yankees farm team. And Arnold Galiffa won 11 letters at the U.S. Military Academy. 11. I mean, he could play baseball. He could play uh, football. He could play basketball. And uh, he came from a family that was in the early pioneers in the pizza business. And I learned something doing an interview with his uh, uncle that um, I'd never heard this phrase before, but when they first started doing pizza pies, they were called Italian tomato pies. Think about that. Italian Italian tomato pies before the word pizza came around. Right. Okay. Italian. And you think about that. So Appleton and Denora, which one do you think's got more famous people? I think on a national stage, maybe Appleton. Definitely. Because you mentioned a lot of names in Denora that I don't think a lot of people will be familiar with nationwide. I mean, Stay Unusual and Ken Griffey, those are the two big ones, right? 
Um, Monaga Hello, where you? Oh, you got Joe Montana, then Monaga. But now we're moving. Joe Montana was actually New Eagle, I think. That's where he yeah. was born, and yeah. the hospital is located in New Eagle. Yeah. Very good. Well, you know, when Joe Montana. You're going to have to here. do your homework because you're going to be tested from time to time whenever we're. Where did Rocky Blair go to college? He went to Notre Dame? Notre Dame. Okay. And what year? He was on a national championship team. What position did he play? He was a running back. Running back, okay. Because he's not a big guy. No, he's not a big guy. And the thing about Rocky's story is that Rocky, when he came out of Notre Dame, was not a great physical specimen, wasn't particularly fast. And after he got wounded in uh, Vietnam, Art Rooney specifically kept him on the team because he liked Rocky Blyer. Noel might have cut him. Noel was less... uh, uh, cozy about those sort of things. Well, he's the head coach. He's got to win he's at all costs. Win. Now, the, the owner of the team is trying to keep people around that he likes for the culture, and, like, yeah, it's a totally different well, thing. one of the reasons the Steelers were unsuccessful for so many years was that Art Rooney oftentimes hired people or, you know, was always drafting players from Duquesne University, uh, had coaches uh, like yeah, Walt Kiesling, who was incredibly bad, and Joe Bach and but he liked these guys. He liked those guys. Yeah, well, no, and I'm a business owner, and I've gotten my tr- I've gotten into trouble where liking somebody supersedes actual results, and yeah, and there's a conflict sometimes. And uh, but guess at the end of the day, though, I'm the one that has to be. I'm okay with that. I'm okay because to me, someone that's likable and lovable and good with customers, and if they're not the best or the fastest, that you know, I mean, there's a place and time for that too, but I feel like a lot of business owners nowadays, you know, um, it's all about results, 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 and they don't look at the intangibles that a person can bring. Now, I know in football, you know, and especially today with the media the way it is, sure, they'll take whoever. <laughs> they'll t- you could go out and do something at a bar one night and be, you know, making touchdowns the next day, and everybody's praising you nowadays. So it's, uh, it's definitely an interesting uh, dynamic as an as a owner of a franchise. Well, one of the things that I've often done uh, whenever I like to teach, and, when, and I've worked at, uh, as a teacher at Point Park University. I've worked uh, at uh, Robert Morris at the University of Pittsburgh. I was invited to teach at uh, Carnegie Mellon, but they didn't want to pay me anything. <laughs> they said, we're a very prestigious school. And I said, well, I figured you're going to pay me more since you're so prestigious. I said, but you know, you get, you get paid for making this phone call to me. I said, I expect to be paid for what I do. I'm not getting rich off it. And I don't expect to be able to buy a new home because of what you might be willing to pay me, but I want paid. So I, I always w- wondered what it would be like t- to have the elite students that they have at Carnegie Mellon. But I did quite well with, uh, the ones that I had at Point Park really well. And, uh, Many of them told me, Ben, that I was the best teacher that they ever had at Point Park. I like to teach. Well, because you were there because you wanted to be there. Right. Some of those teachers, I'm assuming, again, I'm assuming for all the teachers out there, they get stuck in their rat race and they keep going year after year after year after year, and it's more like a job for them. For you, it was a passion. I've benefited from good teachers. I had really good teachers at Taylor Alderdice High School. I had some teachers at Pitt that, uh, you know, I can can name them because uh, they made an impact on on my life. And as I told you earlier that I was just an ordinary student at, uh, in school. But for instance, even when I was in eighth grade, I, I directed a show, the Christmas uh, Carol, uh, 
And I was Scrooge. Yeah, I figured. Yeah, I yeah, was Scrooge. I, I could figure that. <laughs> I had one kid named Eugene Startari in the cast, and he was he was playing Bob Cratchit, and uh, he Eugene stuttered, and I prayed the whole show that Eugene wouldn't get caught in a stutter, and he didn't. He he, he lived up to it. Showtime. I remember Jim Sakley. He was uh, he was one of the uh, Marley's Marley's ghost and. Uh, so not every kid directs a show and stars in a show in eighth grade, but I did it. And I remembered, I told my wife this, that I remember being brought to that same classroom, which was eighth grade, when I was in first grade at St. Stephen's School in Hazelwood. And I was brought there by the nuns to read to the eighth grade students from a book. So that's why I had self-confidence and I think I benefited from uh, my father was a pleasant drunk. We had a lot of mean drunks on our street who hit their wives and their kids. And my dad never did that. And he just drank too much, smoked too much. And it led to his early demise at 62. But my dad loved us and he was proud of us. And uh, I asked a friend of mine who was a big shot in AA. I never understood why my dad drank so much. And he said he didn't like the way he felt. He didn't like the way he felt. But I felt like I was responsible for him at the age of 10 or 11 years old, that I had to look out for my dad. And I really think that rather than that being a negative in my upbringing, I thought it was a positive because I had to be responsible for him. I had to be uh, a diplomat for him. I liked going to bars. Um, and he introduced me to all his friends. And he knew everybody in the bar. Um, he used to walk a perilous one mile. You know, he didn't drive. He didn't have a car. So he would get off of work at Mesta Machine Company, and he'd uh, take the streetcar, and he'd get off at the other end of Hazelwood from where we lived, at the Hazelwood Bank, and he'd cash his paycheck. And there were 38 bars or saloons in a one-mile stretch in Hazelwood wow. and Glenwood. And uh, that was the business to be in. And my dad had to stop at several of them in order to pay his tab. You know, I don't think too many people in, that own bars these days run tabs. No, they're called credit cards now. Uh, right. Exactly. Good point. Good point. But uh, by the time my dad would get home, my mother never knew how much money she was going to get. <laughs> it was like if there was a lot, it was like hitting the lottery. Uh, you mean like if you came home with the whole check? Never. Never came home with the whole check. Never came home with the whole check. That's a tough. I mean, it, it sounds to me. I mean, I, I like the fact that you took your childhood and you, you know, or most people would think that's a tough situation. A kid should never have to be that responsible. Or, but you took it as a positive, and you always were optimistic about it. And you looked at the glass half full, where a lot of people don't. You know, a lot of people will blame their parents for anything that happens to them in their adult life, and I think that's a. A really big issue in America today. Well, one of our future shows, you're going to have to tell me, give me a cue to tell you the story about my father at my sister's wedding. I think that's the cue. I mean, yeah. why make the why make the listeners wait? <laughs> Just go ahead and tell us. Well, I'm 11 years old. I'm supposed to be the ring bearer at my sister's wedding. She works at Western Electric, and uh, her husband to be from the north side. He uh, he was a little fellow. He he worked at. Uh, at um, AT&T, they were 
they were uh, sister companies, so to speak. So we're at my house, and we're in the kitchen, and the kitchen's filled with the people that work with my sister at Western Electric and guys from the north side who are friends of my f- future brother-in-law. So everybody's there. We're going to go to the church to rehearse the wedding on the eve of the wedding, and everybody's there except my dad. He's not there. He's supposed to be there. He's the one that's going to give away the bride. So again, like I'm looking out the window of the kitchen. I'm, you know, where the heck is he? And even that at 11, you know, why was I responsible <laughs> for making sure my dad got up? So all of a sudden I spy him at the bottom of the, of the walkway and he's staggering. He's staggering. He's going to come to go to a wedding rehearsal. As he's walking up the, the sidewalk that led to our back door, I see that he's got his ring, he's got his finger inside of the ring of from a bottle of wine. Okay, one of those loops. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Back in they had like a little loop on the back of it. So right. it was, was it a gallon? Was it more of a gallon jug? Yeah, it was, it was a the, big one. Big old gallon jug. Big old gallon jug, and his hands bleeding. Oh boy. He had this rival, and saloon rival, kind of like McCoy Hatfield deal. And my dad apparently had struck the man over the head with that bottle when they were fighting and broke it and also bloodied his hand. So now my dad's coming up. He's staggering. He's bleeding. And I go out on the back porch to catch him, to catch him coming. Now, what were you going to do with him? Well, that's a good question because I could have taken him around our neighbor's house and come on, come into our home on the other side of the house. I walked him right through the kitchen. Now you can imagine my sister's friends are aghast. They're standing there and they're looking at my dad. He's smiling. He always had a smile on his face, you know. He's saluting him as, as he walks by, kind of like Myron Cope. And uh, I take him into the bathroom. We had a unique architecture in our house. The kitchen was a half level below the basement. So I take him into the basement where we had actually put a bathroom in and really gussied up the place. So I take my dad in and I wash his hands, tell my mother as I'm leaving the kitchen, make some coffee. And she brings me a coffee in the back. So I clean up his hand. I may have cuffed him a couple times in the cheek to sharpen him up a little bit. And we went to the church in a later car. Now, somebody was driving us because we didn't have a car. So we get to the church, and we get through the ceremony okay, you know. But the next day, I wouldn't let my father go to the wedding reception because I knew it was a perilous journey. I didn't want to embarrass my sister at all, so... He stayed home. When I think about it now, he stayed home with the grandkids. <laughs> oh, wow. That, well, which is worse, right? I yeah, don't, I don't think, know. But he back was then, they didn't have laws or rules, right? Like, he was good with grandkids. That, that, was back, that was back before you could pretty much do whatever you wanted, right? Right. When I think about it now, it might not have been uh, uh, from any parenting magazines. But uh, my dad loved, the, loved his grandchildren, and uh, I always thought my children missed out on something by not by not knowing my dad. My wife tells me that he was always pleasant with her. And one of the nice things is I, I have some friends from my childhood who tell me that they really liked my dad. And they said, when I would 
come to your house to see you, your dad would always greet me and he would say, uh, would you like something to eat? Would you like something to drink? You know, Jimmy's upstairs. He'll be down in a minute. You know, what can I get you? And I've always tried to be like that because when I was a kid, I remember going to friends' homes and being told to to wait in the kitchen or something while they ate. <laughs> <laughs> Over at the O'Brien house, they have hospitality. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the Irish in you. I don't know. The Well, the Irish in me, well, Myron Cope says that's a myth about, you know, the Irish being it's tough. What we, it's, tough. What we, it's what we see in movies, right? Right. Yeah, remember that movie at... Uh, What's that Boston movie? The Departed. Yeah. Whitey Bulger and oh yeah, the Irish Mafia. Oh yeah, in Boston. Yeah, then they did another movie. Uh, How about Mickey Ward, the fighter from Boston, who uh, was he had three great fights with Arturo Gatti, a Latin American fighter in New York, and I I saw most of those. Yeah, we talked about that last week. Yeah, yeah people say to me, "Oh, Ali Frazier, you saw the greatest fight ever." I said, "No, nah, it wasn't the greatest fight ever." I said, "I saw better fights. It was the most entertaining. It was the most." Uh, most eyeballs, most money. Yeah, national spotlight. Pittsburgh right. was in the national spotlight. Right. What? Uh, let's get back to Rocky Blyer because I know he's a dear friend of yours. And tell me more about Rocky's journey from Notre Dame to Pittsburgh. And how old is Rocky now? Just to give the viewers perspective. Well, Rocky's in his 60s uh, for sure. So you were about 20 years older than him? Coming again. Rocky's probably in his early 70s. Okay. Rocky's in his early 70s. So you're like 10 years older. You're 10 years older than him. Yeah, I just talked to him the other day. Uh, I told him that when I watched a rerun of The Return, and I was at a restaurant, a Cadillac restaurant out in uh, toward the airport, and he was walking the fields where he had been a soldier, where he had been wounded, where some of his fellow soldiers were shot and killed or badly injured. And Rocky didn't want to go back to Vietnam. Many people had wanted him to do that for years. But ESPN, I'm sure they fronted some good money and they were going to promote it. And, they, and it was good for Rocky's businesses as a speaker, and also uh, he has a construction company that he fronts for, for that his brother-in-law actually operates. So he knew it was good for business to, to go back, and then, and, then he, and he got curious about what it might be like. And he went under the best of terms. But as Rocky was walking through the battlefield on TV, I'm watching it, looking over my wife and daughter's heads, he starts to cry. The next thing I know, my wife saying, what do you have tears on your face? What's going on? That's the kind of guy Rocky Blair is. I mean, if you know him, you care about him because he cares about everybody. And I knew what he was thinking. He was thinking about the, the atrocities that he had witnessed and how lucky he was. You know that my mind's wandering, but just the other day on television, they had a press conference with Tiger Woods. And Tiger Woods was talking about how lucky he was to be alive, how lucky he was to have a leg that he almost lost. We didn't know that at the time, but I, I, I knew or surmised that he really got banged up in that auto accident uh, out in California. And uh, I knew that his legs had to be crushed and so forth. But they were very 
cautious about the news that they released on that incident uh, when it happened. Uh, and he kind of went into retreat at his home in Florida. But I'm not surprised to learn now that he did. He almost lost his leg. And he's talking about how he's never really going to be on the PGA Tour again. But he would like to play, make appearances in, in certain events. And it'll be interesting to see how that works out because if he isn't physically up to standards, he's not going to be able to play golf up to his standard, which is as high as it goes. And I don't think he'll be happy if he's not playing like Tiger Woods. Yeah, like he doesn't want to be 85 years old out there with a half a swing. Right. Yeah, like he, it doesn't seem like he, he would almost rather hang it up, right? Because like, and not let the people see that. If Rocky, if uh, Tiger Woods had the personality of Rocky Blair, he would be up there with Muhammad Ali as one of the great sports personalities of all time. Wow. How did Rocky Blair play his whole career in Pittsburgh? Yes, in the pros. And when he first came out of Notre Dame, he wasn't the best candidate for the Pittsburgh Steelers. They had a great bunch of players at the time. They're not usually great at picking the best candidates anyway. So, Well, they were then. They got lucky. <laughs> they got lucky. And um, Rocky, when he came back from Vietnam, I mean, he was a special teams performer and stuff like that. And the old man liked him. Was know? he on all four Super Bowl teams? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, and he was running back. He got better. When he came back the second time, he worked out, did physical workouts and so forth to strengthen himself, and, and admittedly, he was one of the Steelers who took steroids, which were not outlawed at the time. It was, there was no rule against them. It was only later on when they learned of some of the side effects of taking uh, performance-enhancing drugs that it became a no-no. So it's important to keep it in its time period. And the thing is, he got bigger, stronger, bulked up. One time I was standing next to him in a photo session, and I'm five, eight and a half, and that half's important. Important to you, I could tell. And Rocky, at best, at best, is five, nine. And I'm standing next to him, and I said to him, Rocky, what's the deal? I'm as big as you are. And people have always, coaches were always telling me that I was too small to play football. And he took his knuckle and put his knuckle right in my sternum and wrapped me a few times. I felt it. And he said, your problem, O'Brien, is you believed him. <laughs> and I said, there you go with your motivational speeches. You know, the thing, yeah. And that was a natural for him to, to be so upbeat. And, uh, but like I said, he became a better football player the second time around. And Rocky of recently has been critical of these Pittsburgh Steelers we know today because he doesn't think that they have enough pride in being Steelers. Yeah, they don't care as much anymore. That's, that's, that's all sports, and we talked about that. I feel like sports it ain't the same as it used to be. And um, it's like, you know, they put the jersey on. You can just tell. I mean, they, they, the way they give up the end of games, you know, like if they're down a lot or if they're up a lot, like, you know, that, that would never stand back in the, the 70s. You know what I mean? Do you think Rocky Blyer um, benefited from playing alongside Franco Harris? 
They benefited from each other's company. They complemented each other well. Every so often now, I see some highlights from those days. And I covered the team when I was in Cleveland when both of them gained over 100 yards against the Browns in the same game. I saw them at their best. I was the only Pittsburgher who was not at the stadium the day that Franco had the immaculate uh, reception. I was the only one. Not. I was the only one in Pittsburgh not at Maz's home run that won the World Series. But the thing is, is that uh, Franco and Rocky were both faster than I realized. They were both faster. When I see them on TV now, I mean, they really move. And the, I had. Uh, interesting experiences with both of these men where I had their attention for a much longer time than any other writer or media person ever experienced. One was on an airplane flight to and from Calgary, Canada with Franco, and the other one was uh, riding shotgun with uh, Rocky to from Pittsburgh to Canton, Ohio for a ceremony he was participating in, representing the military soldiers who had been NFL players. So I had a great experience with both of them. And Franco was deceptively fast. Franco, he just is one of the greats of all time. And the, and the thing about Franco is he's much more eloquent today in reflecting on his career and in promoting uh, academics in Pittsburgh for the school kids and stuff like that. He's much more uh, sure of himself and... He's a really one of Pittsburgh's all-time great people, really. I met him once at the uh, at Oakmont. I think it was in uh, 2016, whenever they had Oakmont at the U.S. Open. Um, I went into the pro shop, and uh, he was just standing. He, again, I'm not a Steeler fan. I've only been in Pittsburgh five years, but that's a face. I mean, you know that face. I mean, like you know that you know him right away. Like he, you know, you can't mistake him for anybody. I mean, he is very unique. He's got that uh, that beard, and uh, he has a theatrical face. Yeah, he just, and he's just he carries himself well. And, and I was like, I was like, you're Franco Harris, you know, looks like a little kid. <laughs> Even though I'm like 35 years old, I'm like, oh wow. I said, this is cool. I said, and there was no one else in the pro shop. It was like you know the the, the match was right. going on. Everyone was in the stands. I'm in there trying to find a hat or something. And so was he. He was like in there just trying to buy a shirt or a hat. And uh, so I got my picture with him. And that was, and then that same weekend was when Cleveland won the NBA finals. Um, Cause I'm, you know, I'm from Canton, Ohio, like you mentioned. Um, and I was, you know, a big LeBron fan. You know, I was happy for Cleveland to win a championship. But I was at game six against Golden State. And the Penguins had just gotten done winning um, the Stanley Cup that year. And Evgeny Malkin was at the Cavs game in Cleveland, and he was on his way to the concession stand. And he, no one knew who he was because we're in Cleveland. They don't follow hockey. Uh, I'm like, and this is like the same, I think this is like the same weekend or something like that. Or it was like the week before. I'm like, oh, there's a Vikany Malkin. My sister was like, who's that? I'm like, don't worry. He's like one of the top three hockey players in the world. And I said, he's right here. I said, I'm going to go ask him for a picture. And I went right up to him and I said, hey, Gino, I said, I'm from Pittsburgh. I said, I'm a big fan. I said, can I get your picture? And he was awesome. He had a little Miller, Miller Light in his hand. And uh, I think he had just had a baby, too, um, at that time. And his wife was kind enough to let him go see his. He had a Russian friend, I think, was playing for Cleveland uh, 
Mozgov was the uh, the center for the Cavaliers during that run, but uh, that's how I put all that together. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Canton's always been good to me as far as like seeing celebrities and seeing players when I was a young kid. Trivia um, question. Go, oh man, this is going to be dangerous. You grew up in Canton. Yeah. There are three men in the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, who grew up in Canton, Ohio. Who are they? Alan Page. That's one. Dan Deerdorf. Two. This other one's before your time. Well, those guys were before my time, too, but at least I remember Dan Deerdorf in the announcing booth. I know Dan Deerdorf, the announcer, not the, the football player. But um, From the Cleveland Bronze. Oh, Paul. Was it, was it Paul Brown? No. No? He was the, he's not from Canton, yeah. He's from he's Maslin. He was a coach at Maslin. Maslin, yeah. All right, I won't torture you anymore, but I'll give you two initials. M.M., like M&M. Marion Motley? That's it. There you go, buddy. Yeah, that was probably before my time. Yeah. <laughs> See, Marion Motley was one of the original black players in the NFL, and uh, they had a guy named Bill Willis. He had two players on the team, and they were really pioneers in terms of uh, the pro football league at large. It's one of the reasons why Paul Brown was just so much ahead of every other coach in terms of running a football team, running an offense, running a defense, and uh, knowing who could play football. Paul Brown was exceptional. He was the first one to have a full staff of coaches, uh, and he uh, he was the one who originated the taxi squad. He's before your time, though, right? Yes. Okay, I just want to make sure. No, well, when you say that. Well, no, like, I mean, he, was, never watched he was the owner fo- of the Cincinnati Bengals. By the time you were coming out? I was covering. Gotcha. And they had a quarterback. Let's see how good you are in this one. Not back then. I, I don't... First year of the Cincinnati Bengals. They had a. What red, year? They had a redheaded quarterback. What year? I can't remember. Probably around 70 or something like that. They had a quarterback who played at the University of Cincinnati. And now he was playing for the Cincinnati Bengals. And he was great, but he only lasted about a year and a half. Bad arm. Greg Cook. Greg Cook. Don't know. Now you do. Now I do. Greg Cook. You've added that to your list of... My list of things I have to go home and research after the episode with Jim O'Brien because he name drops 50 people and about... 48 of them I've never heard of. But that's okay because we're learning and then we're recording history. So and Jim is uh, a big fan great. of history. Oh, well, yeah. we're trying. I think that uh, next week we should talk more about Canton. Let's talk more about Steelers that are in the Hall of Fame. Um, Rocky Blyer, is he in the Hall of Fame? No. No. But should he in be the, in the Hall of Fame? No. No, okay. He's in the Steelers Hall of Honor. Is that because he's like a great, lovable guy, or because he was like he put up stats? No, he really did perform for the Steelers, and he was a, he was a key contributor. He blocked a lot for for Franco Harris. Wow, uh, and you would think I'd be the opposite because Franco Harris is the bigger guy. Yeah, well, you have to make yourself useful in whatever way you can. They had. I'm did they have to, a fullback back in the day? Franco was the fullback. So Franco was the fullback that got all the carries, right? Think about that. I mean, Franco – well, Franco and Rocky both had a 1,000-yard season in the same year. Um, 
I'm trying to think. Well, of now that. almost like any every NFL team's got the two back setup nowadays. You know, you, but, like back then though, that was unheard of, right? Well, it was actually now you have so many teams running with one back or an empty backfield. Well, yeah, you know, that. does it make any sense to have Ben? Well, we got to talk about Ben Roethlisberger. We could put him in next week when we talk yeah. about the Steelers in Canton because right. I mean, I, I think he's going to be in Canton. Yeah, he'll definitely be in Canton. And, he'll be late. Uh, he he won't get in first ballot because you know he, they don't like his. I don't know. Well, he should be. He's just not a superstar at the position by himself, like, you know, Peyton Manning and Tom Brady and those guys. Um, but because he's on some good teams, he's got, what, two Super Bowl rings? Right. I mean, I think you got to put him in. So stay tuned to that episode. We will be back with Jim O'Brien next week to talk Steelers, Canton, and we'll get a little bit Big Ben Roethlisberger in. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Big Fish Cares podcast. It's our passion to help share stories and journeys, to help inspire optimism, to take action and accomplish your goals. Make sure to like, rate, and review the show. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hook up with us on the website at www.thebigfishcares.com. Find us on Facebook at The Big Fish Cares and on Instagram at bigfish.benny. See you next time.